Our scripture passage this morning comes from Matthew 17, 1 through 13. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise, and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And the disciples asked him, Then why did the scribes say that Elijah must first come? And he answered, Elijah does come and will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Father, we do confess that we are needy. We have great need, which makes us so more thankful, so so much more grateful that you are a great provider. For you alone, our soul waits. From you comes our salvation. You alone are our rock and our salvation our fortress, and we shall not be shaken. Father, our hope is in you. Would you strengthen our hope? Father, we pray for some of our members that are ill. We continue to pray for Kristen Goldsmith, that you would give healing to her, that you would just overcome whatever's going on with her body. You would heal her. We know you can, so we ask that you would. And if not, Lord, would you give doctors wisdom as they continue to Try to find out exactly what the root cause is. Give them wisdom. And in the meantime, God, I pray for Kristen to be able to wait well and to suffer in a way that honors you. We know your promises that you are, in fact, right now conforming her to your image. And we pray that she would lean into that, lean into you. Pray for Nelson as well. Help him be able to lead and care well for her during this season. We also pray for Gary Toppert, who's Recovering from a second surgery, God, would you be with him? Would you bring healing to him? Would he recover well? Pray for Marcy to be able to love him and care for him well. And many other trials, God, would we lean into them and realize that ultimately they're not from the enemy and they're not an accident, but trials are sent by you, our sovereign and good God, and that we can trust that whatever our lot is, help us to sing, praise the Lord, bless the Lord. Father, we pray for former members that we're now are partnering with in mission, the Ailey's. Pray for them to continue to flourish in their new local church. And as Thomas's job is to send out and mobilize missionaries, would you give him favor as he's taking six trips this summer? Would you bless them? Would you strengthen the teams? And would you make gospel headway on the ground where they go? 
Pray for another one of our fellow pillar churches, Sun City Church in El Paso, that you would be with them, continue to help them flourish, help them to figure out a building situation. We're thankful for their growth, but pray that you'd provide a place that would fit all of their people in one service and one building. Got to pray for the singles in our congregation, that you would be with them and that you would be their portion and that they would use their singleness for your glory. Singleness provides unique opportunities to minister to Christians and in the local church and be a kingdom witness. And I pray that our singles would be zealous for good works. Pray for their holiness. God, as we turn to hear from your word and see a vision of the glory of your son, would you increase him in our own personal hearts, but also in the lives of our church that you would increasingly make us a church centered on the Lord Jesus. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but your word endures forever. We pray this through Jesus the King, your Son, our Lord, who is enthroned at your right hand and the Spirit, ever one God. Amen. Well, next week is Easter. can't believe it's already upon us. So again, as I said last week, invite someone to church. They're expecting an invitation from church people, and so capitalize on that expectation. Swing at the softball the Lord gives us every week, and just wait and see what the Lord does. The American Institute of Church Growth surveyed 8,000 church attenders, and they asked, why did you come? And here was the results. One to two percent had some special need that they came for. Two to three percent were walk-ins. Five to six percent were influenced by the preacher. Two to three percent liked some program the church offered. One to two percent came as a result of some visitation efforts. Four to five percent were reached by a Sunday school outreach. 0.5 percent were reached through television. A lot of churches may need to rethink that budget line item there. But 75 to 90 percent people came through the influence of a friend or a relative. It's the vast majority of people come to church because someone reaches out and invites them. And so take advantage of that. You know what we're going to be talking about next week? The most important event in all of history. So let's invite people to come. And next Sunday, when you come in this room, talking especially to Southside members, come in here with intention. You know, there's a real sense in which in Abilene, one of our mission fields is church services especially places like Easter in Abilene, Texas. So come in here, come in here every Sunday with intention to meet somebody and to speak words of life. There will be people in here next week for whom it will be a watershed moment. There'll be people here who don't want to come, but it's the right thing to do in Abilene, Texas. So they're going to get dressed in their pretty pastels and come. And God will have you an opportunity here, your words. This is so amazing. What a privilege we have as Christians. God could use your words next Sunday to speak live or ask maybe a bold question or a, a bold challenge or an invitation to set an eternal soul on a new trajectory. What a privilege. So take advantage next week. But today we're in Matthew chapter 17. If you're a guest, we've been walking through the gospel of Matthew and we're here at chapter 17. If you're using one of our Bibles there in the chairs, it's page 772. The transfiguration. And the purpose here is that you might see the glory of Christ to embolden in you for mission 
And so you might faithfully follow him even when the going gets tough. So let's look together at Matthew chapter 17, verse 1. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. Six days later, is that random? Of course not. Nothing in the Bible is random. I'll show you in a moment why that's important. It's an allusion to the Old Testament. But Jesus comes and he takes three of his closest associates, apprentices, disciples up with him. This is his inner circle. We can learn from Jesus how we ought to do ministry. Jesus had, you know, at times he would minister to the crowds oftentimes, but it really wasn't his main thing. Jesus didn't really seem to be a fan of the crowds often. He would often, you know, remove himself and go to solitary places. And then he had his, his band of disciples. We usually think 12, but there were actually more than 12 disciples. And so that, that little closer circle that Jesus did a lot of ministry with, but there were times where Jesus would get even deeper like this and go with that inner circle where he knew he would go especially deep. We can learn something from Jesus here. In fact, this model is where we get at our church the idea of D groups. We have a lot of different contexts of ministry, which are all valuable. Here, obviously, super value. Home groups are valuable. But D groups, that smaller group of three to five men or three to five women who go deep together to help one another grow was really where the secret sauce is, according to Jesus. That was his model, right? There was a really influential book years ago by a guy named Robert Coleman, still worth reading, by the way. It's called The Master Plan of Evangelism. It's kind of a misnomer title because it's really on discipleship. And he, show, he just looks at Jesus. How did Jesus do ministry? Jesus commanded us to make disciples and then modeled for us to make disciples, help people follow the Lord. Well, what did he do? And Coleman summarizes it this way. He first selected selection, then association. He was with them. Consecration, this idea of commitment together, of obedience to the Lord together. Impartation, us sharing what we've learned along the way. Demonstration, showing what it looks like. Delegation. And then supervision, letting them go and then watching them do, and then ultimately reproduction. And if you look at the ministry of Jesus, that's how the church was spread. In fact, in John 17, Jesus prays to the Father and he says, I've accomplished the work you gave me to do. Have you ever thought about that verse? Because it's before the cross. Well, what work is he talking about? Well, building groups that will help each other follow Lord. Follow the Lord, follow the Lord. It's how the church grows. Personal ministry. So to follow Jesus, we need to follow his plan, right? I wonder, do you have a plan to obey Jesus by making disciples? We all live by some plan. Maybe you not thought about it, but if you examined your life, we all have some plan. We all have some central organizing principle. We have an objective, and then we order our life around that objective. Well, to follow Jesus, we order our life around his and follow him and help others follow him. So we see what he does there. He takes his D group up the mountain. And mountains are significant in the Bible. Lots of important things happen on mountains. And this one's unnamed here, probably to avoid superstition. I mean, if we knew where this mountain was, can you imagine how modern day hucksters would monetize that mount? We don't know which one it is. We can make some guesses. And they go up and Jesus is transfigured before them. His face shone just like Moses. 
as he came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets. And his clothing becomes radiance. And these disciples, they get to see a glimpse of his glory. Just a small corner of the veil is lifted. And then some old friends join the party. Moses and Elijah show up. Been dead a thousand years, more alive than ever. Had to be really encouraging for Moses and Elijah as well, right? Able to see and participate in what ultimately their ministries pointed forward to. And it says they were talking with Jesus. <laughs> I'd love to know, what are they talking about? And then just imagine being one of these disciples, confused, filled with doubt at times, to see Moses and Elijah and Jesus. Elijah as a representative of the prophets and Moses as a representative of the law. Look at verse four. Not surprisingly, Peter speaks rashly. Verse four, and Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we're here. If you wish, I'll make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. Last week, Andy Davis was here, Dr. Davis, and he mentioned, you know, some people, when they don't know what to say, they say things anyway. That's Peter, afraid of the silence, but he's a little more respectful this time. He's learned from Jesus' rebuke. Remember a couple weeks ago, Jesus called him Satan and said, get behind him. So he weighs his words a tad more. Lord, Lord, this is good. I like this. If you want me to, I can make some tents. I'll make some tents, one for each of you. And then look at verse five. He was still speaking when behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them and a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Notice the father has to interrupt Peter. In fact, in the original language, the word still he was still speaking, it's front-loaded. It's the very first word of the sentence for emphasis. Still, he was speaking. <laughs> I can't wait to be able to see this, right? Peter, Peter is just, he's one of those chatty guys. He doesn't know what to say. He just keeps talking. He's excited and he just can't hold it in. So, Lord, this is good. I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit handy. I can make a tent. This would be really great. I mean, I can't believe that I'm here. I mean, you know, I was, last week, I, I nailed it. I said, Jesus, who is he? He's the son of the living God. I got that. I know it was revealed by the Father, but I got it. I kind of messed up later, but, you know, you win some, you lose some. Fell forward, Peter. Fell forward, Peter, man. Moses is here. He's more handsome than Charlton Heston even. This is Red Sea Moses. Elijah, I mean, I made it. He's taking selfies. Look at me now, Ma. Started from the bottom, now we're here. Boom. The father interrupts Peter. I mean, God had to interrupt Peter. He would never had a chance to speak. <laughs> and what does the father say? Divine affirmation of Jesus the son of God. This is my beloved son. This one's unique. See, Peter had made the mistake of thinking they were all equal. I'll make a tent for each of you. He's going to soon learn they are not equal. Jesus is superior to both. Jesus is superior to Elijah because Elijah was the pointer to him. And he's superior to Moses because he's the new Moses ultimately who sends them out to deliver his law. And all through his teaching, he says, you've heard it said by Moses, but I say to you. Listen to the way the author of Hebrews puts it in chapter 3. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. 
who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Jesus is superior to both. And the Father wants us to know this. You know, the Father only speaks twice in this gospel. So these are very important words. This, this here is the, this is the Father's sermon on the Mount of Transfiguration. The other time is in chapter 3. You remember that? Right after Jesus' baptism, what does he say? He says the same thing. 3 verse 17. Behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. I think in chapter three, what you have is before Jesus, this is chapter three, right in chapter four, Jesus is tempted by the enemy. I think the father wants the son to know that he has his affirmation there before Jesus begins his ministry. Why would he say it again? This time in front of people, I think it's so that we would be emboldened for our ministry as we're tempted in our wilderness. The father wants us to know and revere the son. That's his will. Philippians 2, because of the obedience of Jesus and the cross, therefore God has highly exalted him and put him, gave him the name that's above every name. This is my son with whom I'm well pleased. The father says, listen to him. He doesn't say listen to them. He says, listen to him. Now, we're gonna do some Bible study this morning because there are allusions to about six Old Testament passages in this verse. So let's dive in and see what we can find. I'll have you turn to some of them, but not all of them. You don't have to turn to Exodus. But first, I think Matthew wants us thinking about Exodus and specifically the giving of the old covenant. Why? Because Jesus is bringing about a new covenant. Just listen to the similarities in Exodus 24 verse 19. I mean, sorry, 24 verse 9. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, there's three people along with Moses. And 70 of the elders of Israel went up and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone like the heavy, very heaven of, heaven of four clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. The Lord said to Moses, come up to me on the mountain and wait there that I may give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandments which I have written for their instruction. So Moses rose with his assistants. Joshua and Moses went up into the mountain of God and he said to the elders, wait here for us until we return to you. And behold, Aaron and her are with you. Whoever has a dispute, let him go to them. Then Moses went up the mountain and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain and Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. Lots of allusions here to what's going on. And remember where we're at, Exodus 19 is that historical prologue to the old covenant. Exodus 20 is the 10 commandments. 21, 22, and 23 are the rest of the old covenant and 24 is this 
ceremony of ratification. And so I think we are to read here that Jesus is doing something new, new covenant. And then in these words from the father, this is my son whom I love with him. I'm well pleased. Listen to him. We have four allusions to passages. I want you to see some of these. So flip over to Psalm two, basically open your Bible around about in the middle and turn left. Some you'll find the book of Psalms. Psalm 2, really important psalm for understanding our Bible and understanding who Jesus is. It's a royal psalm. This is my beloved son. Royal psalm, a messianic psalm. Acts tells us it's written by David. Let's read, let's read all of it. It's just 12 verses. Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against Yahweh and against his anointed saying. That word anointed in the Greek Old Testament is the word Christos. Christ. Messiah. Verse three, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. How does the Lord respond to this rebellion? Does he wring his hands? Is he worried? No, verse four, he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury saying, as for me, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Today I've become your father. Verse 8, ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage. In the ends of the earth, your possession, you shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. This king, this coming anointed one, Messiah, he's also the son. And this king is not going to merely rule over ethnic Israel. He's going to rule the world. The ends of the earth will be his possession. Why is that significant? Well, it's significant as we've seen so many times before in this gospel that Jesus is the king. Jesus is the Davidic king. He's the forever king for everyone. Third allusion is to Genesis 22. Remember Genesis 22, the sacrifice of Isaac? You don't have to turn there. Just remember God took Abraham to the mountain and said, take your son, your only son, whom you love. Now it's a little harder for us in English, but let me just read the original so you can see the reference here. I'm going to read Genesis 22 and then right after that, Matthew 17, and listen just to how it sounds. Genesis 22. Huion su ton agapetan. Matthew 17. Clear allusion to this Genesis 22 story. Well, what's the Genesis 22 story? Do you remember? Jehovah Jireh. Abraham is about to sacrifice his son and the Lord provides a ram in the thicket. Why is that significant? Who is this son the father's telling us about? Well, he's one who will go on to accomplish a substitutionary work in our place. 
He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Lord shall provide. Fourth, with whom I am well pleased. It's an allusion to the book of Isaiah, chapter 42. And I would like you to turn there again. It's about smack in the middle of your Bible. Isaiah is a big book. And usually when the New Testament quotes the Old Testament, it's not merely that little verse. Oftentimes it's the whole broader context. And this whole section is Isaiah 40 to 66. It's really important to understand Jesus in our Bible. It's, that whole section is quoted more in the New Testament than any other section in the Old Testament. So much so that the early church fathers called it the fifth gospel. You have four gospels. They call this one, Isaiah 40 to 66, the fifth gospel. Just notice how Mark starts his. As they're telling these gospel writers often just fill those first few chapters with this section. Why? They want us to know this Jesus that they're telling us about is the Jesus Isaiah promised. So Mark says this, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. And he quotes from Isaiah 40. Really can't fully understand the Gospels without understanding the Old Testament. And this is one of the most important sections. The Gospel of Matthew alone quotes the Old Testament more than 60 times. It's like the old, you know, the little iceberg. You can see that tip. Old Testament is the bottom. It's the foundation. Isaiah 42.1. Behold, my servants whom I uphold, and here's the illusion, clearer in the original than here, but my chosen in whom my soul delights, my servant with whom I'm well pleased. I've put my spirit upon him and he will bring forth justice to the nations. Jesus is the servant that Isaiah speaks of. In fact, we talk a lot about the gospel. We're in the gospel according to Matthew. That very word comes from this section. Flip back a page to Isaiah 40 that really kicks off this whole section. This whole section filled with beautiful and glorious promises and imagery that God's going to come back and he's going to restore and rescue his people. Notice how it says, verse 1, Isaiah 40, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Does that sound familiar? It's who John the Baptist is, right? Look down at verse nine. Here's where the word gospel comes from. Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of gospel, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of gospel. Lift up, fear not, say to the cities of Judah, Judah what's the message? Behold your God. First and foremost, Isaiah, the good news is that God's coming. God is coming back. Flip over to chapter 52. Again, still in this section. Look at verse 7. Familiar words because they're in the book of Romans. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings gospel, good news. Same word in the original. Who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation. And what is the content of that good news? Who says to Zion, your God reigns. What's the good news? God has come back. And what does he come back to do? Rule, reign. 
bring the kingdom, which is why Jesus says the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. What he's saying is all that in Isaiah that he promised, it's here. The messenger, that's John. God who's coming back to restore and rescue, that's me. And what am I going to do? I'm going to bring a new exodus. Look at Isaiah 43. The exodus was the mighty act of God in salvation in the Old Testament. And these are promises of a new exodus. God's going to return again and part through the waters and defeat the enemy and restore his people. Look at Isaiah 43, verse 16. Thus says the Lord who makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters, who brings forth chariot and horse, army and warrior. They lie down, they cannot rise, they are extinguished, quenched like a wick. Remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I'm doing a new thing. Now it springs forth, do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. The wild beasts will honor me, the jackals and the ostriches, for I will give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert to drink, to give drink to my chosen people, the people whom I formed for myself that they might declare my praise. Look down at verse 25. I am he. What's he going to do? Who blots out your transgression for my own sake and I will not remember your sins. Flip over to chapter 49. Who is this servant? Isaiah 42 introduces us to this servant who's going to come. Isaiah 49, there's several servant songs. 49 tells us more about what his work will accomplish. Verse 5, Isaiah 49, 5. And now the Lord says, he who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him. For I'm honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. And he says, it's too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. If it was just ethnic Israel, that would be too small. No, this servant has a national, indeed international ministry. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. This servant is coming to restore his people and be a light to the nations and bring the kingdom. And how's he gonna do it? Isaiah chapter 53, verse four. This servant is the suffering servant. He'll be the king, but his crown will be of thorns. How will he bring the kingdom? This king will rule from a tree. Verse 4, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Through the cross, through what we call substitutionary atonement. One more, just so you can feel a sense of the pervasiveness. Flip over to chapter 61. More familiar words. I just want you to see that they come from this section. Sixty-one, one. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me 
to bring gospel to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn. You remember that passage, what Jesus quotes in Luke 4 as he begins his ministry. Why is this significant? My son, the servant with whom I'm well pleased. Well, when the father alludes to him as such, what he's saying for those with ears to hear is that he's the suffering servant sent by God to come and restore and rescue his people. That's who he is. Let me just pause here and ask, have you experienced this redemption that we're speaking of? Maybe you're here and you're not sure. Maybe you're here and you're not a Christian. This good news is the good news that you can't save yourself and you don't have to. The good news is the gospel that Jesus comes to do a work of substitution. God requires perfection. None of us are perfect, which is why a perfect substitute had to be sent to die on our behalf. We couldn't live the life God calls us to live. The suffering servant does. We deserve to die because of our sin. Suffering servant dies in our place. So the call then is to respond. That's the work. That's what he came to do. Live and die and be raised. We respond through faith and repentance. Two sides of the same coin. We turn from sin to the Lord. We drop our agenda and we take on his agenda. It's easy as that. Call on the name of the Lord and you will be saved. If you have questions, those are the kinds of questions we love to talk about. So don't leave here without having questions answered or setting up a meeting to have questions answered. If that's you and you have believed, I'm in. I trust the Lord. Your first step of obedience is believer's baptism. It's to go public. It's this public pledge of allegiance to the Lord saying, I'm with him and I want you all to know it and I need your help to follow him. Fifth, the phrase, listen to him. You don't have to turn there, but that comes from Deuteronomy chapter 18. 18 verse 15. Deuteronomy 18, 15, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me, Moses says, from among you, from your brothers, it is to him you shall listen. He says it again in verse 18, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him. Jesus is the prophet like Moses. They was promised way back in Deuteronomy chapter 18, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. He's the one with the words. He's the one like Moses. We've seen in Matthew that Jesus is like a new Moses, right? Matthew showed us this Moses typology right from the beginning. Remember Jesus is presented as new Moses in chapter two. He goes out of Egypt like Moses, Matthew 2.15. He passes through the water. The Jordan River in his baptism, chapter 3, verse 13. Then he goes to the wilderness. Moses was in the wilderness 40 years. Jesus is tempted in the wilderness 40 days, but he's faithful. And then he ascends the mount, Matthew 5, 1. Moses ascends the mountain to receive revelation. Jesus goes up the mount to give revelation. This new Moses brings about a new exodus with new teaching. He's redeeming us, and he's not redeeming us from Egypt or from Rome, but from our true enemies, Satan, sin, and death. And so we need to listen to him. It's the Father's word for you this morning. We've got so many voices in our heads today, don't we? Oh man, more than ever. And the creator commands you, listen to my son. 
Heed him. Obey him. Hear him. Look to Christ. Exodus 24, Psalm 2, Genesis 22, Isaiah 42, Deuteronomy 18, and we're not done yet. The story of Jesus is the completion and fulfillment of the Old Testament. The story of Israel. Okay, so zoom, zoom back out now, back into the transfiguration. Here you are. Curious how much of that the, the disciples recognized. They're very popular passages, so I think they probably recognized many of them. But how amazing, back to Matthew 17, how amazing would this experience have been for these disciples? I mean, their minds would have been blown. Don't you love to be there? Do you ever ask yourself, man, I just wish I could have been there. I feel like my faith is faltering oftentimes, but, but if I had been there, I'd be stronger. If I'd have been one of the disciples, I'd be good. Peter, who was there, actually says, we, you and I, have something better. Why? Because we have the Bible. Listen to 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16. Ryan read it for us. We didn't follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son, with whom I'm well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we, church, have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Peter says, you know, that was great, that experience of the transfiguration, but you know what's even better, more fully confirmed the written word of God. That word scripture is graphe. It's getting at the writings. We have something better. Amazing. We can have even greater confidence. Why? Because this is more fully confirmed than any man's experience. Well, how do they respond? Matthew 17 Verse six, when the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them saying, rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. So they rightly fall on their faces, but Jesus tells them to get up. You've got nothing to fear because the glory being revealed is Jesus and Jesus is for them. And if Jesus is for you, there is nothing to fear. And they look up and they see Jesus only. No one except Jesus. Elijah and Moses have given way. The law and the prophets have been fulfilled. It's all about him. Verse 9, and as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. 
says, keep quiet. You're going to understand this in a little while. Wait for the resurrection, verse 10. And the disciples asked him, then why did the scribes say that Elijah must come? He answered, Elijah does come and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come. And they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the son of man will certainly suffer at their hands. And then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. See, the Jewish expectation was that Elijah would come first. We actually saw that in Isaiah 40, and it's the last prophecy, really the last page of the Old Testament. In fact, flip over there. It's right before the book of Matthew. Malachi chapter 4 promises this explicitly. The expectation was Elijah would come, and then then God would come right after him to defeat evil and rescue and renew his people. Look at Malachi chapter 4, verse 4. Last verses of the Old Testament. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Oreb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. Lest I come and strike the land with the decree of utter desolation. Jesus says, you're right. The scribes are right. They're reading the Bible right. Elijah does come. But let me tell you something. John the Baptist was Elijah. You missed it. And what they do to him, whatever they please, we learned that they beheaded him. And then they realize, oh, he's talking about John the Baptist. And then he mentions again his own suffering. So also must the Son of Man suffer. The point is that the people of Jesus... John, the messenger, Elijah, Jesus himself, they will suffer hardship for the sake of the name of Jesus. I think that's one of the main reasons Jesus has the transfiguration. For them and for us that we might see his glory, know who he is, worship him, even in the midst of hardship. Jesus reveals a small part of it to embolden us. Just a corner of the veil is lifted for us to see what will be. And so as we follow Jesus and we live this life that he's called us to, we can have confidence. Confidence in this one, in the son with whom the father's well pleased. Confidence in the one who all these promises find their yes and amen in him. Confident hope. Ready to experience difficulty for following him. His messenger was beheaded. If the Son of Man must suffer thing, we should realize we will as well. But as we see, clearly, he's worth it. This vision of Jesus should embolden us to faithfully follow him even when the going gets tough. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this narrative that we have preserved. Pray that it would embolden us like it emboldened your disciples to be able to live for you unashamed with boldness, with abandon. Would we give our whole selves to this king, this one, this suffering servant, this Davidic king, this one who will rule forever and ever, this one who laid down his life for us, this new Moses whose teaching gives life. Would we be compelled by him to give our lives for him? 
God, help us to believe he's worth it. We pray it in his name. Amen.